Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. Since the OpenAI company released artificial intelligence chatbox ChatGPT last November, both hype and doomsaying about AI has been hard to avoid. So should we be excited or fearful or both? Is AI going to take over the world or improve our lives and make some people very rich? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Michael Timothy Bennett, an AI researcher at the Australian National University. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. Hi, Gareth. Thanks. AI was around for a long time before ChatGPT came into the world. Um, So can you start off by giving us a basic definition, perhaps, of what AI is and a little bit of detail on what the origins of it are? and maybe some examples of where we might have been using it for some time in our everyday lives and perhaps not even realized it. Sure. I guess AI means programs that mimic the human ability to learn or reason. And this is usually done in the case of learning by approximation or uh, in the case of reasoning by searching through uh, a space of possibilities. Uh, so learning is might be understood as instead of just programming behavior. We, we program a means of acquiring that behavior. So um, we could give a program a set of examples and it tries to replicate those examples given new inputs. Or in the case of uh, reinforcement learning, which is more like what we would see in animals or humans, uh, we give a program a means of deciding whether a program is, uh, an input is more or less good, a sort of pleasure or pain response called a reward signal. Then if we go into reasoning, um, you know, you could think of that as how we make plans to get to goals. And what we generally call AI these days is usually some combination of both learning and reasoning. I guess then if we go into a little higher level, we could say um, if you've heard of AGI, AGI is like an AI that is one system to rule them all that can do everything a human can in terms of learning and reasoning. And uh, super intelligent which is what people are worried about with the doomsaying, tends to be uh, an AGI that is much better at learning and reasoning than any human could be. Um, and the current AI, things like ChatGPT, are um, not very intelligent in terms of, you know, they're, they're not able to adapt very well. But um, given enough examples, we can make a program sort of learn anything. It's just a question of getting enough data, enough scale. And that's sort of where we're at now with the technology. Okay. So what were the origins of AI? Oh, it goes back quite a while. Um, A lot of the major breakthroughs happened in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, You know, in terms of reasoning, we had uh, search discovered in the 50s. We had uh, sort of a heuristic-based search called ASTAR discovered in the late 60s. Um, And in terms of examples of that, we in the first Gulf War, we used uh, this technology to to do the logistics and planning for the U.S. military. Um, and in machine learning, you could trace that back to Newton, uh, you know, with the function approximation by Newton's method in uh, 1685 or um, linear regression in 1898. Um, something like what we call uh, neural networks today is, is perceptrons, which were back in the 50s. Um, so the technology has been around a while. What's new now more than anything is, is the uh, the hardware, our ability to perform sort of large-scale uh, you know, function approximation using 
thousands of GPUs. Um, and some of the theory that has been developed over the last you know, 50 years is, has informed this idea of artificial general intelligence, which uh, sort of forms the theoretical foundation of what OpenAI and DeepMind and Anthropic and companies like that are all trying to achieve as quickly as possible. So would there be areas where AI is in use, you know, in our everyday lives that we don't even, perhaps some of us don't even realise? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, uh, Netflix recommendation algorithm is a classic example. Uh, everything you're, you're sort of shown on your phone is usually the result of some form of um, approximation. Uh, uh, so it, it's trying to infer the probability uh, that, of uh, what you're likely to respond to, what you're likely to buy, and then present you with information that will lead you to spend more, keep you glued to the screen. If you've ever wondered why you struggle to get off your phone, it's because your phone is trying to stop you from getting off. Absolutely. With a lot of success with some people, that's for sure, and like my uh, son. Um, so, look, I mean, you know, AI has obviously been around for a long time. You've out- outlined a you know, deep history there and background of it, a long time before chat GPT entered the, the world. So, you know, why do you think there's been so much hype around AI this year? I mean, you can't sort of... You can't sort of look at the internet or or turn on a radio or TV or anything without hearing something about it now. Um, is this all because of chat GPT or is there more to it? Oh, I think there's a bit more to it. I mean, we've had people like Nick Bostrom going on about superintelligence for decades. Um, Elisa Yudkovsky, the prominent Duma who wrote the uh, piece in Time magazine calling for airstrikes on data centers has been around for a couple of decades as well. ChatGPT is like a, I, I think it's sort of like a match to kindling. It's very impressive to interact with, but it's a repeat of the research results OpenAI released in 2020 with GPT-3. What's different now is it showed up in the public eye. ChatGPT is an interface the public can interact with. It lets them know where we're at with machine learning. And when the public got interested and imagination started to run wild a little bit, then uh, scientists got caught up in the excitement too. One thing led to another. And a lot of it, I think, looking on Twitter, there's, you know, there's a lot of money and power up for grabs here. People have been trying to push their own narratives. We've got Mark Andreessen, uh, who's a billionaire who, um, he founded Netscape and he's in charge of, uh, charge of Andreessen Horowitz, the VC firm. Um, about four months ago, he started following me on Twitter randomly, really strange. I didn't expect that. I don't have any Twitter followers. And there's this whole group of effective accelerationists that have cropped up and I, and they seem to be aligned with him. He's writing things talking about effective acceleration. And this is a response to effective altruism, which is the thing the aforementioned Eliezer Yudkowsky is associated with the, um, another movement that's focused more on AI safety and holding things back and centralizing control. And uh, so there's different people pushing different political agendas based on different philosophies and different conclusions drawn about the potential of AI. Um, a lot of it is, it's, it's become its own political landscape online. That's kind of bizarre and uh, interesting to watch. Grimes is involved in it somehow. I don't know how that happened, but, there you are. Yeah, it is. It's a very, a very 
interesting space. Now, you, you wrote an interesting article for The Conversation in early June, and your introduction in this said, doomsaying is an old occupation. Artificial intelligence is a complex subject. It's easy to fear what you don't understand. These three truths go some way towards explaining the oversimplification and dramatization plaguing discussions about AI. I thought that was a really interesting article and that comment as well. So, you know, rather than this oversimplifying and dramatizing of AI, how should we be looking at it? I'd break it into two aspects. You've got the practical aspect, which is about the automation of labor. And you've got a more philosophical aspect, which is about trying to come up with mechanistic explanations of, of things we associate with the human mind. So our ability to learn, reason, consciousness, meaning, all of this stuff is something we're trying to build machines to, to compute, to do. Um, and so it's, it's interesting from a philosophical point of view, and perhaps it reveals something about ourselves, but it's not, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not quite science fiction yet. Um, although I, I can see how from the outside, a lot of it would look that way. And from the automation side of it, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that could be considered sort of alarming or scary, but it's, it's still, it's, it's sort of the next step in the industrial revolution more than uh, a lot of what we'd see in, say, Terminator. That's a relief. So there are lots of people making predictions about what AI is going to do, and I think here of a couple of examples I've seen in recent times, you know, Goldman Sachs or, or McKinsey, for example, saying AI is going to boost productivity and add X percent to global economic output or it's going to result in X million job losses. I'm just wondering, you know, how seriously should we take those sorts of predictions? Oh, with a, a bit of a grain of salt. I mean, there are consultants that are winging it because their livelihoods depend on it. Uh, I've made my fair share of Excel models. There's a lot of assumptions that go into those models. And AI is a bit of a uh, black swan event. Um, companies like Goldman and McKinsey excel at predicting the status quo. And uh, if you don't know what a black swan event is, an author, Nazim Taleb, he's uh, famous for making money off market crashes with his barbell strategy, where he, he keeps a reserve of cash and, a, and invests the rest in high-risk assets. And mathematically, this works out much better than the typical approach to fund management. Um, and he writes books about you know, managing risk in human organizations. AI is, is like a collection of black swan events that are going to play out over the next several decades as we see different sorts of jobs and industries um, hit with a lot of automation. Things will get much easier for some people and a lot harder for others. So I would definitely take it with a grain of salt. I'm interested in how different types of people should be thinking about or, or, or looking at, at, at AI. Um, you know, you talk about automation. I mean, in the Obviously, the, the, the labor force, that's a, an area where there's a lot said and written about, about AI. But, I mean, for example, if, if I was a young person, you know, heading into the workforce soon or considering a career option, I mean, how should somebody like that be thinking about AI? Well, there's going to be a lot of opportunity as well as a, a lot of risk. What used to work is, uh, in terms of career options is unlikely to work in the future. Uh, if you want a very safe option, I would go for a trade. Uh, manual labor, everyone, 
repairing machines, repairing electricity, uh, electrical systems or, you know, plumbing, that stuff's not going to go out of fashion anytime soon. It's hard to automate. We don't have uh, little robots that can maintain our homes and we're unlikely to get that for a long time. If you're an accountant, though, you're going to get automated very quickly. Uh, so I would go for a trade. And if you must go to university, uh, learn about AI and computer science. Whatever, you, Even if you just learn how to use these tools, it'll give you an edge. You probably already know more than the adults. <laughs> That's true. Um, what about you know middle-aged workers who are seeing some of these stories and predictions? What should they be thinking? Take it calmly. Don't uh, panic. If you're not in a white-collar job, you're probably safe. Uh, but uh, if you are in a white-collar job, I would try and interact with these systems, learn their limits a bit. You know, you can uh, you can play with ChatGPT online for free now, see how it goes. And it has obvious limits. If you play with it enough, you'll start to discover where it's very, very dumb compared to a human. Uh, and if you can see those flaws, you can work out a niche for yourself and work out how to sell yourself if your manager starts to get crazy ideas about, I don't know, replacing everyone with a bot. What about business owners? And I mean, that's a very broad thing because there are so many different types of businesses, but you do, you see headlines now about how AI is going to impact this industry and that industry and, and, and ones you, you never, you know, a layman would never really think AI was going to impact. So as a business owner, how, how do you look at it? Oh, it's a huge amount of opportunity. Um, I'm guessing most business owners are sitting around having a lot of fear of missing out right now. Uh, it'll affect every part of the uh, economy, but it'll tackle the white collar stuff first, as I say. But um, you could use it. There'll be opportunities to cut costs, access uh, better services. And by that, I mean, there's right now, if you are the owner of a business, you can go on to, uh, there's one service called Midjourney, uh, where you type in, a description of whatever picture you want for your marketing material, and it'll spit something out. Um, it's a little hit and miss, but it's $15 a month, and you can create a huge amount of really high-quality assets with this. Saves you a lot on marketing and branding. Uh, that's one example. I mean, there'll be hundreds of other examples that'll crop up over the coming years. And the end result of this is people talk about being able to have a one-person mega corporation where you, you basically scale up your business from you selling lemonade in your backyard to a global empire and you still only are one person with no employees. That's a long way off. But if you get good at working out how to automate every aspect of what you're doing with your business, you can scale. And so this gives small business owners in particular a huge opportunity to scale and compete on a, on a more sort of national or even international level. And what about investors? I mean, there'll be people out there thinking, wow, there's a lot of money to be made out of AI. So what should investors be looking for? Well, anytime there's something that's substantially increased, there's uh, something called total factor productivity in economics, where you generally, um, it's, it's the thing that spurs, you know, it's a, your increase in, you know, economic output. So, um AI represents a massive increase in total factor productivity. Wherever you put your money, you're likely to see better returns over the coming decades. We've seen this with the internet. We've seen this with other new technological developments, but this is going to be a little more extreme. Uh, that said, if you want to make money in the short term, I think uh, the automation of white collar labor is something um, worth taking into account. I don't know how much, uh, how the, I, I can't, 
begin to speculate on how this might affect a company like KPMG or uh, it's going to be it's it's going to be a bit wild. Uh, so I would say barbell strategy. Uh, do what Nazim Taleb says: keep half your money in cash, and uh, don't worry about medium risk assets. Just go straight for high risk assets and cash, because everything's going to end up as high risk in this environment. So another issue that's cropping up more and more now is regulation. So I I recently received a note from a major New Zealand law firm which had the title of AI, The Race to Regulate. It outlined moves towards regulation of AI underway in Australia, the European Union, UK and US, and then sort of makes the point that um, the New Zealand government's not issued any specific proposals to regulate AI technology. Should it do so? And why or why not? And if so, what should the focus be? I don't think they need to be trying to regulate. We don't even have a common use case established. And do we regulate hammers or do we outlaw assault and murder? It's a tool. And usually with a tool, we wait to see what its common use case is going to be. We outlaw guns because they arguably only have one use case, which is not something we really want a lot of the time. So with an LLM, until we actually have clear use cases, regulation seems massively premature. And it's only going to... Uh, you know, favor incumbents who can afford to deal with the extra paperwork because they've already got a strong position, lots of money, the resources and contacts set up to deal with any new regulation. And undoubtedly, they would help shape that regulation to their own ends. That's what's trying to get out with that article. But other laws should already account for most of the more nefarious use cases like spam, fraud. And you can't really outlaw people using LLMs for nefarious ends because we're going to have foreign actors, so uh, other states, criminal organizations overseas. I mean, if if you're an organized crime syndicate, are you going to commit crimes in your own country if you can just reach across the ocean and do it somewhere else? It's it's probably going to be a huge increase in cybercrime as uh, people use, you know, LLMs and other forms of AI to to, to, uh, automate, you know, scam and fraud on a massive scale. so if we were likely to introduce some form of regulation, I, I, I don't know if it's regulation we should be looking at so much as a policy response. I, I mean, we should be looking at uh, improved cybercrime support and education <laughs> would probably be a good one. Uh, likewise, uh, education about sort of propaganda campaigns on social media, um, psyops. I mean, I was just talking about how Individual billionaires seem to be running psyops, right? If 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 random rich people are doing it, I'm guessing there's a few governments doing it. I mean, that's something people should be aware of when they go online. Uh, we could also uh, look at you know things like uh, funding uh, local open source projects and startups to you know uh, keep a, a, a domestic uh, control and autonomy for smaller countries like New Zealand. Um, you don't want to be handing everything off to to a company or or just even a, a non-profit organization that controls a model that's outside your borders all the time. Redundancy and distributed control are probably going to work in favor of smaller countries like New Zealand. You mentioned LLM, so large language model, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So yeah. that's that's a, a chat GPT type thing? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. chat GPT is uh, a wrapper for a large language model. It's just an interface we can interact with. A large language model, you could think of it as just inferring the uh, probability distribution of, of, of language given a huge amount of language as its training set. So I was talking about examples earlier. Something like ChatGPT is just given access to, you know, the the content of Wikipedia, and it finds the correlations between words. It doesn't know anything of the meaning of those words, but it turns out if you just infer the structure of language, you can infer a lot of what looks like the meaning a human might intend. But I should emphasize here that an LLM doesn't intend anything. It doesn't doesn't have a uh, a goal when it's being trained. And there's an important distinction to be made here between simply sticking an LLM into a goal-based agent, which a lot of people have been doing, um, and actually uh, constructing your representations of language in service of a particular goal. And that's a, a complicated theoretical argument at this point, but I feel like it's one that's worth mentioning. So you've recently been at a, a conference in Stockholm, an Artificial General Intelligence conference. I'm just wondering, I mean, what was the mood like um, this year in the, I guess, the community, the insiders in the AI world such as yourself? And what were the sort of hot topics of discussion? <laughs> uh, well, I, um, to be very lucky to be the hot topic of discussion myself for most of the conference because of these papers they presented. That was nice. Um, so, I mean, my papers were on, uh, you know, the theoretical foundations of, of AGI and uh, basically under, undermining the approach taken by OpenAI and DeepMind, pointing out that there is something that something at the basis of what they're doing that they've got a little bit wrong. Um, so that obviously, you know, raised a few eyebrows. And then, you know, trying to, I was talking about mechanistic explanations earlier. Uh, providing a mechanistic explanation of what consciousness consciousness is. So uh, that's a sort of a more philosophical result. It's an interesting one. And as for um, a lot of the conference was concerned with these kinds of questions. Uh, the mood was sort of feverish and exuberant. There's obviously a lot of a lot of FOMO around the chat GPT thing. I saw some heated arguments <laughs> um, between people about... Uh, what the best approach to AGI was. People have very strong opinions on Ilya Sutskiva's approach. I said earlier that LLM amounts to inferring, you know, probability distribution over language. Ilya Sutskiva, who's the uh, runs research for OpenAI, his whole approach to AGI is to infer the probability distribution of the world. Uh, a, a lot of people don't think that's an approach that's actually going to give us AGI, but it is an approach that can emulate any human skill and so it's it's very good for developing practical systems that we can um, use to automate predictable jobs um, so that was a huge topic of discussion uh, I think people are beginning to get a, one thing that uh, uh, one sort of more prominent scientist said to me is he says that it's going to become like biology now biology has a lot of uh, a lot of money in it because of the you know pharmaceutical industry, and there's all kinds of stories, um, horror stories, I should say. I've been told of grad students having their research stolen by supervisors and people being 
shafted in some one way or another. And the feeling is that now AI is going to become a lot more ruthless and cutthroat where before it was, uh, you know, a, a lot more friendly. Um, a lot of these people I see in the headlines now are people I know. It's really odd. Like, it's really a small world. I mean, Marcus Hutter uh, is, was, you know, he still is technically at the ANU. His student, one student founded DeepMind. The other one is the head of alignment research at OpenAI. Hutter himself is at DeepMind now. He founded the AGI conference along with Ben Goetzel uh, and some other people. And he and Ben Goetzel are still on the steering committee. Ben Goetzel runs Singularity Net. All of these people know each other. Um, and uh, yeah, now it's suddenly there's a whole lot of money and power at stake. <laughs> certainly, that's that's certainly true. So, look in the in the start, I I asked the, the question of you know whether it was going to take over the world or or whether it was going to improve our lives. And I mean, there was an interesting article um, in the New Statesman recently where they had what they called some of the godfathers of of, of AI who who disagreed on on where it was now disagreed on where it was heading. Um, so. You know, the, the the headline there was, is AI an, an existential threat or humanity's salvation? I mean, I, I'm just curious, I guess, to sort of conclude by asking you, is it is it either of those or neither of those or perhaps something else entirely different? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's much them. more like, <laughs> sorry? Or all of them. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's a, I don't think it's going to be an existential threat by itself. I mean, it's, it's not like, we can turn around and suddenly, um, you know, uh, being smarter is not going to make me better at playing a game like Frogger. There's a limit to how useful intelligence is in a certain context. And at the core of a lot of these AI safety claims is the assumption that we can build a super intelligence that becomes, you know, limitlessly powerful in a very short space of time. Uh, I think that is based on uh, a very naive set of assumptions, but a very popular set of assumptions in computer science. Uh, and, you know, this, that's where a lot of this disagreement comes from. I mean, you've got people like Jeffrey Hinton. Hinton came up with, uh, well, was part of a, a group that came up with a more efficient way to take derivatives in a certain context 40 years ago. He's run a very successful research group. And I have heard a lot of, heard him say a lot of things that I don't think are very well thought through lately about AGI. I don't think he's maybe looked into that side of things very much. He's a machine learning guy. He's got a field of expertise and it doesn't necessarily include predicting the behavior of a theoretical superintelligence. There are a lot of different sets of premises around. I think if I'm to side with anyone here, it's going to be uh, Mark Entries and say it's likely to be more our salvation than our extinction. I don't think, however, we're going to see super intelligence anytime soon. We'll just see a lot of helpful automation. Well, look, thanks a lot for that. That's a, it's a fascinating discussion, and obviously it's a fast-moving world um, and changing pretty quickly. That is Michael Timothy Bennett, who is an AI researcher at the Australian National University, and I'm Gareth Vaughan at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast. Of Interest podcast.